Hello, today my guest is Mr. Greg Kiesling. Mr. Kiesling lives with his wife in Indiana. I met Mr. Kiesling several years ago, shortly after his son, who was serving in the U.S. military in Afghanistan, died from suicide. At that time, Mr. Kiesling was engaged in a campaign to bring to the attention of the public and mental health community that the President of the United States did not recognize the loss of a U.S. soldier under these circumstances by sending a letter of condolence to their families, as was done with soldiers who died by other circumstances. At the time, I, I was a past speaker of the Assembly of the American Psychiatric Association, and working with Mr. Kiesling, we were able to get the American Psychiatric Association to ask then-President Obama to change the policy. This is a very interesting and important story that we can talk about. Mr. Kiesling and his wife now live in Indiana, where he has a recycling business and is also actively involved in a prison reentry program, and also is a strong advocate of identifying the effects of solitary confinement on prisoners who have had traumatic brain injury. So we have a lot of things that we can talk about, but first let me thank Greg for uh, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you. Okay, why don't we start with with you telling us about your son Chance. What was he like as a kid and how did he come to join the military? Well, uh, Chance grew up in Jamaica. We lived a very idyllic life uh, the first half of his life. He was born on June 7, 1984. And uh, my wife and I, my wife's Jamaican, and we're dual citizens. So as a child, um, you know, he swam in the river and got to go to the ocean and really lived an idyllic life. At four years old, he had to have major brain surgery. He had a malformation of blood vessels. And um, it's a, a long story, but Jamaica did not have the ability. They didn't even have an MRI at that time. And uh, we had a Cuban doctor who was very much recognizing there was something in the brain. So we got on a plane and flew home. He had this malformation of blood vessels that were cut out of his brain. And uh, he recovered and lived a wonderful life, um, you know, for the next 19 years. Uh, we came to Indiana in 1996. And how he came to join the military, uh, we had the opportunity to go to South Africa with our then, the first lady of the then governor of Indiana and the um, the Iraqi war and, and I want to correct he died in Iraq uh, not Afghanistan okay thank thank you for that but um, we had the the Iraqi war broke out he was rooming with the security detail that was uh, there with the uh, governor the wife of Indiana and he got very excited he wanted to go um, you know help change the world uh, by finding Osama bin Laden. That's what he came to join the military for. And we really did try to talk him out of it quite a bit. But um, I remember one of the things, Pat Tillman had just uh, joined the army, and I remember one of the days we are trying to talk him out, and he says, you know, Dad Tillman joined, is it only poor kids that have to go fight this war? Well, where was he assigned in the military, and what kind of things was he doing there? Well, his first deployment, he, well, let me back up. He was trained to do the rebuilding of Iraq. And um, he was a combat engineer, but they worked on, they had trained him to bring in electrical units. And, you know, the thought at that time was that it would be a quick war. 
and we'd be able to, um, you know, get in there and rebuild Iraq. And as we all know, that did not happen. And uh, he joined in 2003. He did not have his first deployment until late 2006. And I remember when he called me, he was at Fort Sill at the time, and he said, Dad, they're retraining me as a gunner. And I'm going on the top of the, um, uh, you know, of the Humvees to shoot. And that was a very sad day for me. So he did his first deployment, quite a bit of uh, reconnaissance missions. I asked him once if he ever killed anybody. He said no, he didn't think so. He shot into the uh, shot into things a lot of times, but he didn't think he ever killed anybody. Well, but, uh, you were able so, to communicate with him while he was in the oh military. It might be <clears throat> now, but we were in the early stages of uh, the cell phones. That was the first thing my wife did was get a cell phone and. We communicated uh, quite a bit. In fact, during his first deployment, uh, he was blown up. He was in at Camp Stryker uh, inside Baghdad, and they had sh somebody had shot a rocket-propelled grenade over the wall. And uh, so I got a call. We got a call that day. He said, "Mom and Dad, I was blown up today." And we went, "Oh my God! Oh my God!" And uh, so he was in the latrine. It was one of my funniest moments for with my son. And, I said, what did you do? And he said, well, Dad, I cut off that turd and rolled. <laughs> and the explosion knocked over the latrine. He wasn't hurt, but he, he changed from that moment. He had headaches and uh, the concussive effect of the blast. No, none of us really understood it at that time, but that was the uh, moment. And so we were there in real time, talked to him quite a bit. Did you realize that he was becoming depressed? Not after, not not right away. Toward the end of the deployment, he was married, and um, he was having trouble. The wife, um, as often happens when they're away from their spouse for a long time, uh, did some things he was not happy with, and uh, he threw his ring and his wedding ring into the Tigris, and we got a call from the chaplain, uh, who said he's in a lot of trouble, and they took his gun away, and um, put him on a watch for ten days. Were there any mental health services available or offered to him while he was overseas uh, having this difficulty? Not at that time, no. And again, it was toward the end of the deployment. When he came back home, uh, it was toward the end of his uh, assigned time in the enlisted army. And so he left. He did go into treatment with the VA here locally in Indianapolis. And uh, we never really knew what was happening in that treatment. And um, I knew he was a different child. His drinking increased dramatically when he came home. But he was in treatment. He got, you know, he left his wife. He had a new girlfriend. He got a new job. And um, we did not recognize the depression, even though in hindsight, um, the drinking was hard. A friend of mine came and brought a bottle of cognac one night. And none of us really drink very much at all. And I'm about to go to bed. And he goes, hey, Dad, can I have a drink of that? And I said, sure. And I got up the next morning and that bottle was gone. And I said, oh, my God. And he said, well, Dad, we're soldiers. That's what we do. We drink. So, he, so, so he, was I, in the, he was in the, continued to be in active duty. Well, when you sign up for the enlisted army, it comes with a four-year stint as a ready reserve. So he was now a ready reserve. He was going to the weekend warrior, the weekend deployments, doing training. And uh, it was beginning to be the wind down of the, of the war. President Obama had just been elected. 
And uh, we were there with our fingers crossed that he would not get deployed as a, a reserve. Uh, unfortunately, he did. So he then got redeployed. Yes. He got deployed at Tort in, uh, he got there. He was uh, cross-leveled. There was 10 Indiana soldiers that were cross-leveled with 300 boys from uh, Tennessee. And I remember we met them. You know, I'm in a mixed marriage. And when we met uh, those boys from Tennessee on the deployment ceremony, one of his friends came up and said, Chance, I never know your daddy was white. You'll be loving Rocky Top before you know it. And we laughed, and it was cute. But they only spent two weeks together. It was toward the end of the war, and they were really there to begin to undo um, a lot of the command posts there and to begin to you know, shift stuff back home. And so we felt he was going into a very safe uh, period of time toward the end of the, uh, the, the, the major hostilities in the Iraq war. So what happened to him next while he was overseas? Well, um, he ha you know, had this new girlfriend and evidently, because of the communication, he could see in real time everything she was doing. There's, uh, um, I can't say it's not Facebook, the one that came before, I can't get it out right now. Um, anyway, one of the, the social media, early on social media things was up. He was able to see a lot what was happening. She went to an amusement park with a bunch of friends. He was unhappy and uh, he began to just deteriorate. And my wife was the star of this moment because she just kept calling and communicating. I was there being the, uh, the tough dad that was, just didn't understand what was going on. And my, they got into a fight. He had said some terrible things to the girlfriend and she had said, I'll never talk to you again. So she was working, my wife was working frantically to get the girlfriend to take his call. He would call here the night, she won't talk to me, I'm going crazy. Uh, I just need to talk to her to apologize. I can't go through another year like I did the first appointment. That was one of the comments he made. And on the last night, my wife had drove to the girlfriend's house and bought minutes for her phone and said, please call him. And she was going, no man's ever going to talk to me like this. I'm, you know, I'm not going to talk to him. And my wife came home. It was midnight our time. And we were tired, and he's calling frantically. And I remember leaning over, grabbing the phone from my wife, and saying, "You know, there's a million girls in the world. Get over her. Be a man. Tough this up." And the last thing, my I should back up. He had sent an email earlier that day that said he had gone to the Portageon and chambered around in his M4, and uh, was thinking about killing himself. And I never. I, I thought, and he put the girlfriend on that email, I always felt he was trying to get her sympathy. My wife and I never discussed that email, although she tried hard to get him to talk to her. But so it's 12 o'clock, I grabbed the phone and said, your mother's tired, you know, go see the chaplain. And she took the phone back and continued to talk to him. But the last thing she said was, please go see the chaplain, please go see. So that's about 8 o'clock that morning. We know he made another attempt to call the girlfriend at about 8.04. They found his body in the latrine at 8.19, and the girlfriend called at 8.28 to say, I forgive you. And he'd been dead for about 10 minutes. And she finally made that call. And his battle, I think it's important to know, your, you know, his comrades, you know, what was happening. The commander, there's the, uh, the thing called the American Portability Act, 
And that act was put in place back in Vietnam so that battlefield traumas that happen when you're enlisted time didn't come back home when you were already reserved. Often your commander would be your employer or your next door neighbor. And they were trying to prevent battlefield traumas from reaching back into civilian life. And of course in Vietnam we didn't use the reserves the way we did in Iraq. So when he was sent back there was no way for his enlisted time trauma to be communicated to his reserve officer. So the reserve officer, because of the very short period of time that they were trained, they only trained for two weeks up at Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, decided that he would split the 10 Indiana boys up with the Tennessee fellows. And the, guy, the kid, he was a roommate with an 18-year-old young man who had just started the suicide uh, pre uh, prevention work. The Army was realizing they had a problem. And um, the poor boy didn't know what to do. Uh, my son punched a phone and broke a payphone out, was, uh, you, know, you know, obviously very traumatized, but his friends that knew him that would know about the trauma with the girlfriend were, were separated from him. He was with this poor 18-year-old kid from Tennessee who, after he died, called us just depressed as could be, saying, Mr. and Mrs. Keese, I didn't know what to do. They had only started training us. I didn't know what to do. Right. So and, in, in retrospect, there really were a lot of clues and a lot of uh, indications that if there had been some system in place this could have been uh, caught. I, I really think, think so Michael. It was in the early stages of beginning to put it together. When his uh, army uniform came back the military suicide card was in his pocket. So they had started the training and beginning to try to figure out what to do with soldiers. Of course today it's easy to know about CET and, and trauma. I mean, we're far down the road with it, but we often forget in 2009, there was still in the early stages of, um, you know, recognizing, recognizing this issue. And again, his commander had no idea. He'd been blown up his first deployment and had been in treatment with the VA. Wow. In fact, two years after my son died, I get a call from the Indianapolis VA from the doctor who uh, called me and said, his Chancellor Kiesling in, and I, I just ne feet nearly dropped on my, hard dropped to my knees, and I said, why are you calling me? He said, well, I was his doctor, and with all the suicide, I haven't heard from him, and I thought I'd better check in, and I said, doctor, he's been dead for two years, and I could help feel this doctor fall to the ground, and of course, the keyboard was, he was typing on his keyboard, and there wasn't even indication he had been redeployed. Wow. Because of this American Portability Act that was put in place for Vietnam with good intentions, but you know that it hadn't caught up with what we how we used the reserves in the in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Right. How did you and your wife deal with this terrible tragedy? Well, it's been ten years. Um, you know, you mentioned that we we run. In fact, we run the largest prison reentry programs uh, in the state of Indiana. One of the largest ones. Um, you know, in the country, actually. And really, so much of my efforts began to pour into to my work, uh, beginning to realize that much of what my son went through around trauma and, and you know, actual brain concussion, many of the people we were serving were going through that same thing. My wife retreated. She had a much different... Um, 
the month that my son died, my wife was um, awarded the, the, the local Woman Entrepreneur of the Year. She was the first African-American president of the uh, National Association of Women Business Owners. She was at the pinnacle of her career, and she retreated. Uh, she's coming back now, I'm happy to say, uh, but at the time, she and I had completely different approaches. I went public, and that's how I met you uh, and all the help that you've given us, And um, but and instead, my wife went the other direction. I just became very public and began to talk about it. How did you come to realize that there was not something right about the way you and the families of soldiers who had a mental a mental illness problem and committed suicide the way the way uh, you were being treated compared to the other families who had lost their loved ones while uh, while they were um, uh, uh, in in combat but didn't have suicide died from combat but not not by suicide. Two two major things happened so. If you recall, President Bush would not allow filming of the flag draped coffins at Dover. And on our son's flight, there were 11 bodies that came back uh, that day, and we got a call from Dover, would we, like, would we be willing to offer filming? I did not know it at the time that the president was considering coming to see these flag draped coffins. When they found out there was a suicide body on that flight, uh, he was turned back, to the best of my understanding. And the, the head of Dover, who was also the coroner there, uh, called me aside. He could tell I was a talker, I guess, and uh, called me inside and said, you know, I encourage you to talk about this issue. He said, I'm receiving a suicide body <laughs> way too often, and, um, you know, somebody's got to talk about this. And then shortly thereafter, the president was on TV multiple times talking about that he knew the impact of war because he had to write a letter of condolence to every single soldier who died. And shortly after Chance died, um, we got a call from a Brigadier General, Colleen McGuire was her name, uh, that President Obama had set up uh, around the suicide task force because there was a big issue and they were trying to address it. And she called me and was very nice and we talked and I mentioned, hey, when do I get this letter? You know, we'd created a little uh, place on the wall and. She said, you know, I don't know. And I said, you should have got it by now. She goes, let me find out. So I didn't hear from her for another week or two, and I called back again, and uh, she still didn't know. And the third time that I called, one of her staff members answered. It was quite a bit different. She goes, Mr. Kiesling, I'm very sorry. There's a longstanding policy that prevents the uh, President of the United States from acknowledging you. And, wow. Uh, how, how that must have been quite an impact on you. It, it was, it more felt, you know, certainly the letter, you know, as my wife said many times, the letter's not bringing our son back. What, you know, what will it do for us? But I felt there had also at that same time been uh, four soldiers who were electrocuted in faulty showers. And the president talked about writing this letter and really made a firm statement to the public that we're going to fix this. And it occurred to me that if he's not making those same statements and, and having to sit there and think even for a moment about our son and the reason he died, he was not making those same impactful statements about mental health services. And certainly there's a big difference uh, between fixing faulty showers uh, and holding people accountable who um, you know created those or didn't put them together correctly and uh, trying to figure out mental health. But it just really hit me like a ton of bricks that by right 
being forced to write that letter of condolence, or at least having to think about it, it would begin to send this strong message um, out into the into the world that um, mental health is something we can't address and we need to address, and maybe we can even fix it. Do you think the president realized he was discriminating against soldiers with mental illness uh, who had suicided? Do you think he had that realization? I don't really have any idea at all. What I do know is in a relatively short period of time, he well knew what was happening. Um, many, many of your listeners may know the current, uh, the New York Times uh, uh, editorial uh, person who's received the anonymous letter around the President Trump's administration, Jim Dow. Um, Jim was the person, the first real person who worked with us, along with uh, lots of reporters. Uh, Elaine Kihana was at CNN. Um, there was just this whole set of people in 2009, shortly after it happened, that um, reached out to us. And so Jim Dow was wonderful to me, uh, uh, well, with the Washington, with the Wall Street Journal reporter, Yoki Driesen. And both of those reporters helped me to understand that there was a long-standing group uh, within the Pentagon and the White House military establishment that felt suicide was a, a weakness. Uh, that it was not the right way to die, and they were holding back the president. So I know he knew it uh, as early as um, you know August of 2009. We're aware that the letter we wrote got to him, but I think it took a long time to build the political courage to make the change. And I'm happy to talk in detail about some of the things well, that happened, including well, the American psychiatrist. Well, well, before we get to that, did you get? Did you get any help from members of Congress in oh, trying to get the president to change his mind on this issue? We, we sure did. Um, we have two Indian two Indiana congressmen. One, uh, Andre Carson, one of two Muslim congressmen uh, in the United States, reached out to me. And in all the emails that we had from our son, he had said some derogatory things about uh, Iraqis in those emails. And I remember Congressman Carson able to move through that and helping me move through it to say I'm here to help you. The other per the other congressman who helped me in a really major way was a very conservative Republican congressman named Dan Burton. And I want to point out that when we first got on CNN with Congressman Carson, there was a lot of backlash. People weren't happy. Uh, we got a lot of mentions in blogs and random emails that, you know, that weren't bad people and uh, our son deserved to die. And I got a call from Dan Burton and said, Mr. Kiesling, I want to come in and help you. Would you let me go on CNN? I think I can help. And from the moment he entered that, and this is actually before the New York Times uh, put the article up, uh, it changed. When Congressman Burton came and spoke on our behalf, in conjunction with Congressman uh, Carson, things began to move. It still took two years, but boy, they were one. I talked to both of the staff of these various congressmen almost every day, certainly every couple of days for almost two straight years. Now, during this period of time, uh, was it true that the number of suicides kept increasing, perhaps even approaching the number of combat deaths? Certainly for those soldiers who had returned home, yes. One of the things I, I don't think we really flesh out well in the deaths within Iraq and Afghanistan, too, was the significant number of soldiers who died by suicide or very risky behaviors uh, while during the deployment. My 
read of the numbers, it's probably close to 10% of those are soldiers who died on foreign soil while serving their country. When those soldiers came back home, a significant number uh, began to commit suicide at home. And that's where that number you speak of um, comes. And certainly today, it's with, with the limited number of deaths on foreign soil, uh, the suicides at home are far outpacing um, deaths at war. Now, it was President Obama who who made the ultimate change in the policy, correct? Correct. Right. Correct. And, and did you, did, did, do you uh, have any idea why and how the president changed his mind? Well, when after the New York Times article broke, we were assigned, uh, the White House assigned us two staff members, uh, Michael Kelleher, who was the gentleman famous for the purple folder. He would have select 10 letters every night that he would put in a purple folder and President Obama would read those 10 letters every single night. So he was one of the, the White House staff assigned to me. The other was Elizabeth Olson, uh, just a, both wonderful, wonderful people who talked to us in a, you know, oh, I don't know, every month or so I'd get a reach out and the congressmen uh, and their staff would be constantly reaching out. And, you know, we just get this sort of same story, the president's thinking this through. And um, what really changed, however, is um, Elaine Quijano, and this is when I met you, I was out in L.A., and I got Elaine Quijano had gone to work for CBS, and uh, Scott Pelley had just been elect or selected to be the new head of CBS News, and I get a call from Elaine Quijano, and she said, you know, Pelley would like to do your story. Could we do your story? And um, they flew to Indianapolis. They did two uh, really good segments on TV, and after those segments aired, I get a call from Matt Flavin, who was that at that time the head of the Wounded Warrior Project. And boy, did it ever change! Uh, Kelleher and Miss Olson were, you know, very calm and very uh, ordered in their t talking. But Matt Flavin, I'll never forget. He said something to this effect: "Mr. Keeslin, I want to ask you: If your son drove a motorcycle 100 mile an hour into a wall and killed himself, did the president write him a letter?" And I remember answering, he said, Matt, I don't know. I said, all I know, the president says he thinks of every soldier who dies, and I just think it's appropriate to think of the reason my son died. And I don't even know if he should get a letter, but he should think of it. And I remember Flavin said, good answer. And um, into the movement, and I think that was June 29th or thereabouts when the uh, CBS story broke, and within a week, the policy had changed. Right. So I always felt that that CBS, uh, I mean, there's a lots of stuff, including we'll talk about the American Psychiatry Association. There's lots of efforts that happened over those two years. But from where I sat, that CBS report changed the tone of the White House. And it might have just been the timing. I don't really know. Right. And you want to mention about uh, what role the, you think the American Psychiatric Association played? I think they played a huge role. Um, you know, to begin to call, because, you know, certainly we're not psychiatrists, we do not really understand this very well. Today I'm much more advanced than I was almost 10 years ago when this happened, but to get professionals to begin to agree with us, and, you know, you and I had the fortune, uh, of, I was in L.A., and um, you reached out to me, and I thank you immensely for that, because you came to the hotel where we were at, and we had a wonderful conversation, and I think it's that the American uh, Suicide uh, Suicide Prevention Network, um, American Society for Prevention of Suicide was a big uh, proponent of this work as well. Mental Health America. Uh, there was just a whole set of groups who began to come out 
and asked for policy change that probably led to that CBS story because you guys came out uh, in advance uh, a few months in, or a few weeks in advance of that. And uh, I remember Senator Boxer got involved in this out of California toward the end with some Hollywood celebrities. And um, it was just this momentum of lots of people coming together saying it's time for this policy to change. So I thank you and your members for all the support that, uh, that we got during that time to make this happen. How did you find out um, that the President Obama had changed the policy? Uh, and do you remember what he said? Uh, he said these soldiers are, are not weak. Uh, and it's a, um, he sent out a, uh, a policy change. It's, I have it on the wall of my office at, at home. But we did not know it had come out. We, we, we thought it was coming. We were getting lots of, uh, I was getting emails from Jim Dow at New York Times, from Yoki Dries at the Wall Street Journal, that it was imminent. Uh, the American Society of Suicide Prevention was saying it was intimate, uh, imminent, that it was going to happen. And, uh, but we did not find out at all until the, um, a local reporter came to my office and said it had happened. And um, that's, that's when this thing happened. I, I have the quote from President Obama. He said, this was a decision that I made after a difficult and exhaustive review of the former policy. And then he added, I did not make it lightly. This issue is emotionally painful and complicated, but these Americans ser served our nation bravely. They didn't die because they were weak. Thank you. And that was read to us by the local reporter from the news. And it was the first time my wife wept. She, of course, she had cried, but she visibly shook and wept. And uh, I'm going to cry now. Um, it was just this very important moment that, uh, especially for her, released that burden. And um, so we're forever, forever grateful. Well, that, that was a great accomplishment that you did. Um, did you ever get a letter from the a letter of condolence from the president? We, we did. It's a. It's not an official letter since the policy change <clears throat> occurred two years after. But in all practical reasons, uh, the letter. It was definitely uh, President Obama's signature. I've had some of his staff members uh, come by my office and verify to me that's definitely his signature. And um, so I think for all practical purposes, it sits on the wall right beside that policy change that you just read uh, below the American flag. And um, it filled a hole in the strangest of ways. You would think it's meaningless, but it did mean something. Well, it's, cha it's changed. I would just quickly say that one of my son's battle buddies that redeployed several times after our son's death was uh, in one of the groups that took Fallujah about a year and a half ago. And the policy today is if you're within 50 meters of a blast zone, you're coming off the battlefield. Much as if you're a football player and you've been hit in the head, you're coming off the football field. It's no longer a sign of weakness that you don't go back into the battle. And he came to see us and he said, you know, I was within that blast zone and I'm, I'm home thanks to your son. So there has been significant changes in society that's, you know, certainly our military, but how we look at football, how we look at CTE, how we look at trauma and its impact on the brain. Uh, and we're at a different place today than we were almost 10 years ago, nine and a half years ago when our son died. Well, l let me ask you this. What would happen if a soldier was traumatized in combat 
came back to the United States, perhaps uh, entered the VA for treatment, and then he suicided. How would the president and government treat that situation, and what do you think of it? Well, I don't think they're going to get a letter of condolence uh, because the, the soldier is not going to be on foreign soil. I do think that we're still struggling with the individual commanders in, in places that are overseeing these. I think some would be very good. They would reach out to the family. They would provide military um, you know, burials and services and, and help. And others are still struggling a little bit. We're, we've made, uh, I, would, I would be shocked that it's uh, ubiquitous, that it's everyone, but I suspect there are still folks who see it as a sign of weakness um, in the individuals. But we're certainly way better than we were. And I use football as an example. I mean, I grew up in a football family. My dad was a football coach. And if you got hit in the head hard and you didn't go back in the field, it was a sign of weakness. And it's very, there's probably a few coaches out there that still want to send those kids back. But the policies and, and the rules make that very difficult, the same way the policies and the rules within the, the VA and our military make that hard to do. But I suspect there are still people that see this weakness. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ironic that if we improve our mental health uh, treatment but still uh, and bring a soldier back immediately, but, but if he should succumb to suicide because of a combat injury, he still wouldn't be recognized by the president uh, um, as he should be. Yeah, it's, 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 it's still an issue that I know when my son, when we were working with CBS on the story, there was another family whose daughter died in a uh, plane crash when they were training. And um, she never got a letter, and to the best of my knowledge, to this day has never got a letter. And of course, she died in just you know trying to serve her country the same way. The difference that has been explained to us is being on foreign soil and or being back home on, on U.S. soil. That's the difference. It's um, odd, but it, it, it's the, the line the military seems to have drawn. Or the White House military, the, the military that influenced White House policy. I know that in recent years you've taken up another cause, and that is the manner in which prisoners are treated. Uh, and particularly uh, the problems that they have when they are released and have to re-enter society. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? I am, you know, we run a, a nonprofit called Recycle Force, and, uh, and Keys to Work is our staffing arm from this, but we help people upon release, within 120 days of release, if they're unable to find a job, their uh, criminal justice oversight officer feels they need help with the job, they're sent to us. And I've come to realize that the people I'm serving have had more gunshots over their head or through their bodies than my son did in two deployments. The trauma of growing up in poverty, the trauma of growing up in many of our inner city neighborhoods that are as much battle zones, if not more so, than Iraq or Afghanistan ever was, is impacting brain and brain formation. The idea of, um, you know, People growing up and either abused, hit in the head by a, a bad father or who played sports, who got brain concussion or had their brains rewired through the trauma of being shot at or seeing loved ones, you know, their friends and families die, has impacted decision making. I am very proud to tell you that the state of Indiana today, our Department of Correction, 
is in the early stages of identifying people with traumatic brain injury and beginning to try to at least identify that when they're released back to society. We're still struggling with the limited number of services available to treat them, but at least we're acknowledging it. And I feel we are today with prisoners where we were about 10 years ago when my son, I mean, obviously the military at that time knew trauma was a big issue. They knew brain concussion was happening, but they had not quite figured out how to do it. And I think that's where we are with our criminal justice system today. And I, I should point out, there's a lot of um, science that shows solitary confinement or severe punishment in prison is only exacerbating um, the mental health issues that people uh, have when they go in. And it's one of the things that our state is still doing it, but it's, it's been uh, reduced greatly. So I'm optimistic that, you know, our son's death has opened our mind. And, and really, when you talk to the public about this issue and you talk about our soldiers, there's a lot of sympathy. And when you can begin to make that connection from our son to the people we're serving coming from prison, it can break down a lot of the, uh, you know, um, resistance to making people in prison, men and women in prison, be, be seen as human. And um, so I am very proud that we're moving that direction uh, we're one of the programs in the country who's working hard to make every single person coming out um, from, pri from prison or jails should be having a, an assessment of their um, brain, brain issues. Well, this is quite an ambitious project, and I certainly wish you the, the best of luck uh, with it for the future. Well, thank you, Greg. I, I want to thank you for, for allowing me... Uh, for coming on this podcast and for also for allowing me to help you in a small way with the project of changing the unfair method in which the president was recognized the contribution of traumatized soldiers who succumbed to suicide. And I want to recognize and thank you again as you were clearly the major force behind the, the president of the United States changing the policy and also pay tribute to you for the work that you're doing now and again to thank you for being on the Psychiatry Talk podcast. Well Michael let me quickly say thank you to you. When we met in LA uh, back I think it was in June of uh, 2009 you were just a wonderful wonderful man. Uh, I think you had to come across traffic to find me uh, in LA and you were just a genuine individual kind and nice and gave me a lot of support because we had not gone on that uh, CBS show yet and it was very early and of course we we'd been working two years and we I was very despondent that anything would change and that meeting with you and then it, obviously the endorsement that that followed was a very critical piece in this all so I, I just thank you so much I'm glad to see you're out doing this work continue uh, to bring awareness to this and thank you so much okay well thank you Greg it's been a really pleasure talking with you all right Thank okay. you to your audience. Okay.